start this morning with three questions, but before I do that, uh, you are walking into the first week, uh, we're a, a new church plant, if you're, if you're not up, up to speed on this, started this July, this summer, and uh, today is kind of our transition to weekly worship gathering, so we'll be here every week, uh, I'm not a comic, but that line worked. I'll be here all week. Uh, so we'll be here every week, Sundays, 1030, and uh, kind of normal uh, church experience, I guess, if you could call it that. And so this morning, we're starting a brand new series called The Story. And I want to begin today with three questions. And the questions are these. Uh, what is the story? Uh, and then why is story important? And then what, or why is it important that we understand scripture? So this just brief introduction here. What is the story? This series is really, is this. We're going to take six weeks to uh, try to answer the question, what is the story that the Bible is telling? What are the broad brush strokes? What's the narrative that the story that, that we find in this book, which is thousands of pages long, depending on your translation and how big the print is, uh, thousands of years old, but what's the story that's being told in this book? So that's what this series is. Why is let me give you a quick definition of story. Uh, story is, is essentially this. Uh, every story involves someone or something that is willing to overcome conflict and adversity to get something. So if you break it down to its most simple definition or understanding of just a story, a story always has somebody who is willing to overcome conflict to get something. So that's pretty much the basics of story. Why is story important? Uh, if you think about story and you think about our lives, I would say that story is important because we speak, live, and breathe in the midst of stories. If you think about your life, uh, all of the things that have happened to you, they're not isolated incidents, right? They're not these things that happen that aren't connected at all. Rather, our lives are a series of events and moments that are all connected and that now, like up to this point right here, tell the story of who you are. And hopefully, this will be part of your story. So in an hour from now, you'll be able to look back and say that this was a part of your experience. But all of those things aren't isolated. They're not uh, random, but rather they're all connected. And actually, they're the sum of who you are as a person, as a being, as a self. All of the things that have happened are a sum of who you are. And so story, as we understand it in that way, is really, really important. Um, not only that, but when you think about story and you try to understand the big story of something or someone, it begins to help you make sense of the details, right? I mean, this is kind of like what counselors do oftentimes. They, they say, tell me your story. Tell me about the things that have happened in your life. And then all of a sudden, things come into focus, and you as a person begin to make a little bit more sense. Uh, the fact that I'm a second brother of, of five boys, so I had an older brother who always beat me up and told me I told me what to do, has a you know, it starts to shed light on why I am the way I am and why if you tell me not to do something... I will do everything I can to prove you wrong, right? That's just part of my story. It's part of who I, who I was growing up. So story helps us understand all of the little things that have happened. It helps us understand the, the events and the moments in our lives and in this book, hopefully. Um, why, is scripture, why is it important to understand scripture as story? If we understand the large story that's being told, which is what we're after in this series, I think, and it's my conviction, that we begin to make better sense of the events that are in this book. How many of you, by show of hands, just be totally honest here, uh, if you have you ever read the Bible and thought, this is bizarre, crazy, and I don't get it? Anybody ever been in that boat before? Look around. Look around. Pretty much everybody in the room. 
Because there's some crazy stuff in here. And I think if we can begin to understand the big story that's being told, then those smaller, iso seemingly isolated in events and incidents begin to make a lot more sense. Uh, and, and maybe most importantly, what we're doing as we go through this series is we're building a theology and a, a framework that will undergird the theology of Awaken. What we're doing is actually constructing and helping all of us see the things that make Awaken unique biblically and theologically. What we're doing is what scholars call biblical or narrative theology or biblical theology. So I didn't know if you would recognize that's what you're getting into this morning, but that's what we're doing. And it's my belief and, and full wholehearted conviction that theology is not for the people up here. Theology is not for the professionals. It's not for the, the scholars and the people who get paid to do it. Theology, the idea of understanding who God is, is for the church and to be done by the church. So I give you a whole lot more credit than most preachers and pastors ever do, ever would. So you're going to have to buckle in, buckle in and, and put your thinking caps on because this is going to get good, I hope. Okay? So turn to Genesis 1, if you would. And I want to read just a portion of the creation story. Uh, the end of it, and then I want to just draw some conclusions this morning, or at least maybe offer some thoughts for you to ponder and think about. I'm going to start in verse 26, and if I could, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, uh, if you're able, as we read God's Word. It says this in Genesis 1:26, And then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all of the earth over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you. Every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that all that he made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and by the seventh day God had finished his work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Pray with me if you would. God, as we settle into this story, uh, this book, this narrative, would you open our eyes? Would you uh, peel back the layers of our heart? God, we've come here today with all kinds of emotions. Some of us are excited and filled with joy because of uh, our experiences over the holidays. Some of us have deep wounds, God, that were resurfaced and maybe uh, things that we have tried to forget for a long time. Uh, so we come from all kinds of different places and, and experiences. And God, it's my prayer that your spirit would meet us here, uh, would speak to us individually and personally and corporately as a body. Uh, we pray in your name by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. First and foremost, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, uh, I want to go towards a more positive direction. But it's really, really important that we note the first thing that I want to say this morning. And if you've known me for uh, at any length or heard any of my uh, time uh, at Solstice and teaching, um, you may have heard me say this before, but I would say this. First and foremost, creation, the creation account in the scriptures, does not and never will answer the questions of modern science. Let me repeat myself. The scriptures, 
The creation story in the Bible does not and will not answer the questions of modern science, nor should it. Uh, one author, a really, really bright guy who uh, wrote a book on Genesis I'm reading, his name's Nahum Sarna. He says this. He says, Biblical man, despite his undoubted intellectual and spiritual endowments, did not base his views of the universe and its laws on the critical use of empirical data. Okay? So, essentially, he didn't use the scientific method to write Genesis. He had not, as yet, discovered the principles and methods of disciplined inquiry, critical observation, or analytical experimentation. Right? Things that happen in a lab, in a science class. Rather, his thinking which produced his writing, was imaginative, and his expressions of thought were concrete, pictorial, emotional, and poetic. Hence, it is naive and futile to attempt to reconcile the biblical accounts of creation with the findings of modern science. Hear me very clearly in what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that scripture doesn't speak to science, or doesn't and on some level play into, correlate to, run alongside of the way we understand the earth and science and all those things. It makes perfect sense that it does, right? Because God created the world. Moses, most people would believe, wrote this. So Moses was, was viewing the world that God made, and so you would think that things would be in line scientifically. But the point I want to make is that Moses never intended to answer the questions of science. So the debates that we have about whether or not Genesis was... or the, the world was made in six days, or seven days, or a thousand years, or a million years, or all of those debates. They're fine and well. They're, they're good debates. We should engage in them as we see fit and as we're interested. But Genesis primarily does not want to answer those questions. He's doing something totally different. If you pick up Shakespeare and read it as a history book, you're going to be way far off. You're going to be far afield from what Shakespeare ever intended to do when he wrote what he wrote. Correct? If you read a love story and you read it as a, uh, a news report, uh, you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to say, what is going on here? That's exactly the same thing that we do when we ask Genesis and Moses to answer the questions of modern science. Does that make sense? So primarily, what he's doing is something totally different, which we're going to get into, <clears throat> but I wanted you to start and say, I'm not going to go there today as we talk about creation, because I don't think Moses ever really cared to go there, if in fact Moses did write it, and I think he did. Um, also, while creation <clears throat> is first in order in the book, like that's the first thing we get in the scriptures, from a Jewish perspective, it's really the prologue to what is the, 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 the primary lens and motif that the Jews saw the, 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 the Old Testament scriptures through, which of course is the Exodus. It's God, God's action towards them uh, in the world and towards creation. So creation is really important, but when we get to Israel in a couple weeks, that's really what the Old Testament scriptures are telling. So as Moses writes this account of creation, he's just setting up what he's really trying to say. It's like a joke or an illustration at the front of a, a really big point. Now, of course, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Because I just talked about God making the world as a joke or an illustration to the main point. That's not what I'm saying. What Moses was doing when he wrote this, though, is very different. He's setting up what he, what, he, what he really wants to say, which is that this God, Yahweh, saved the Israelites, made the Israelites, brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But what he is doing with creation, with Genesis 1, is theology. 
He's telling us who this guy is, what he's all about, uh, why he does the things he does, and really why he's different than all of the rest of the gods on the scene. So, briefly just wanted to say that. Now let's really dive into the, the good stuff. Uh, secondly, I would say, if, if <clears throat> it doesn't answer the questions of science, I would say that it does answer and it does communicate who Yahweh is, who this God of the Scriptures are, uh, or, or yeah, are or is, depending on if you're talking about the Trinity or the oneness of God, but we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> so, here's what I want to show you with this. Uh, when you put creation, the creation account of Genesis, up against or, or side by side with some of the other creation accounts that were present around that time, you begin to see what Moses is doing. Uh, I will just show you one. It's called the Enuma Elish. It was written by the Babylonians, and it's really the Babylonian creation narrative. You can go to the Egyptians, you can go to the Assyrians, you can go to all over the place and find different accounts of how the world was created. What Moses is really interested in is how it's different and how the God of Israel and Yahweh is different. So here's a, a synopsis of the Babylonian creation account for all you historians out there. There are two characters at the beginning, Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu is the male freshwater kind of connected figure, and Tiamat is the female saltwater. These two co-mingle. We're going to keep it PG. And uh, the ensuing result is a bunch of mini-gods. This happens multiple times, and so there's all these mini-gods running around, and I quote from, uh, these are actually, they're found on like stone tablets, interestingly enough. Um, they say that the unremitting and noisy revelry of the gods that have been created were just, they were, they were like... Uh, a vacuum cleaner in the ears of Tiamat and Apsu. They couldn't stand it, so they tried to destroy the gods. This doesn't work very well. The, 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 the plan is foiled. So Tiamat, the female version, goes back and uh, gathers all of her forces together to try to destroy the gods again. Now the gods see this coming, and so they elect a guy named Marduk, this sort of this uh, leader kind of figure. And Marduk does a little uh, negotiating. He says, "Okay, here's the deal. If I'm about to lead this group against Tiamat, the psycho, um, I want ruler. You know, I want to be sovereign and the ruler of everything. If we win, they're like, okay, sure, because I don't want to lead, so you do it. So Marduk goes out against Tiamat." He wins, and he takes the, the he slays Tiamat and takes the carcass of Tiamat and makes the heavens and the earth from her carcass. What happens after that is Tiamat, uh, Marduk basically uh, he, he creates all of the, the stars and the, the things in the heaven, the planets, blah blah blah, and then he assigns the gods to each one of those planets and places. And so these gods are now they've got jobs which they never had before, and they're a little miffed about this whole deal. They're kind of they're kind of put out. You know, because they got to watch, sit back and watch ESPN the whole time before, and now they have to actually do some work. So they get all fired up and get mad about this. And what happens is that Marduk takes the second husband of Tiamat, kills him, uses his blood, and creates humans. The humans then become the slaves of the gods to do the work that they've been given. Pretty trippy, right? Now, put this against the backdrop, or put side by side the Jewish creation account that we just read a portion of. Drastically different, right? Here's just a couple of really important key differences that, that I think, and that a lot of people, a lot of scholars would say, this is really what Moses is doing. He's differentiating the God of Israel and the God of, uh, to the, against the other gods. The, the key points are this. It's one God, one God, not many gods, 
who actually is hovering over the waters in creation. So the first line of the Bible, uh, in the beginning, the, what does it say? In the beginning, the God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. So the God of the, of the Bible is over and above. He's different than creation, and it's one God, not many gods. He's a, the creator, and he's supremely sovereign over all of creation. And really important, his will, his desire, his word, his command is absolute. So when he speaks, stuff happens. Uh, nature, that which is created, is actually subservient to him. It's underneath him. It doesn't mingle. It's not a part of, and it's not connected to, but it's God's holy other, as Kierkegaard would say. Um, humanity. Very, very different understanding of humans. They're actually God-like creatures. Now, uh, this is on tape, so I want to make sure that we get this right. They're God-like creatures. Humans, you and me, we're God-like creatures in the sense or in the way that we have been given, we have been endowed with the Creator's fingerprints, image of, or not essence, but we are to be reflectors and bearers of the image of God in creation, which is different than all of the rest of creation. So humans hold a very different place in this creation account. There's dignity and honor and worth that's given to humans and all of creation. Uh, they're actually then entrusted with mastery of and stewardship, rulership of creation. Very, very different. So the creation story of Genesis sets up the entire rest of the story. What we just read in Genesis 1 and then is reiterated in Genesis 2 actually sets up the way in which things will happen in, this, in the Hebrew Scriptures and the God who's revealing himself to us. It reveals everything we need to know about God and that he's sovereign over creation, about us as, as humans and how we're to interact with each other and the world we live in. And it reveals to us what we need to know about the world we live in. So it communicates a whole deal about who this God is. Third, I would say that it communicates what God wants. So if, if Genesis doesn't intend to answer the questions of, of science, but it does intend to tell us about who God is, it also tells us what God wants, what it is that God actually desires, the God who made all this, what's, at, what's in the heart of this God. Um, we've been talking about this the last couple weeks, but I know that many of you weren't here. So what the creation story tells us about this God is that his voice, his will, his command actually installs or begins or creates this peace and shalom and harmony that is in Genesis 1 and 2 prior to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. So the created world that we live in, is it's, we would call it perfect, which is a little interesting when you start thinking about Greeks and Hebrews and how they think differently. God calls it good. It's everything that he wants it to be, and it's good, it's perfect. And so what you have in creation is this perfect relationship and harmony that exists between you and me, me, us and our world, and us and the God who made us. Um, there's a couple of key phrases in Genesis 1 that, that I'll, I'll just highlight for you. Genesis 2.25, if you've got your scriptures open, it says, uh, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. <laughs> Have you guys ever read that and been like, why is that important, Moses? Uh, yeah, why is that important? Like, what is it about nakedness that's so important? Um, I was just at a, a little uh, concert thing that Don Miller was at, and he talked about this whole idea of being naked. And really interesting take on it. Uh, 
added to, to my already uh, I, thoughts and ideas about it. But he says this. What we gain by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what we gain by eating from that, Adam and Eve, is not freedom, but what we gain is, in fact, self-awareness. Because now, or which now becomes that which alienates us from God and from each other. Think about being totally naked. You all kind of go, ah, right? You're exposed. You're seen for everything that you are. Good, bad, ugly. What we gain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is self-awareness. Have you ever been in a relationship that in a moment, and, and we get just glimpses of this, but it's like in a moment, this beautiful transaction, not transaction, but this interaction of two people happens, and there's this, there's you almost forget about yourself. You, you're just lost in, the, in, in this beautiful connection and this beautiful interaction. This in its best form is what sex is all about, by the way. That's oneness. And we, 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 we lose almost awareness of self in relationship. Not in a weird way, but what we gain when we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just always aware, always self-aware. And what that does is actually alienates us. It puts a wedge between us and God and us and each other and us and the world that we live in. So what God wants, what God wanted, and what God wants is oneness, relationship, connection, Harmony, peace, shalom, call it whatever you want, it's all the same idea. That's what God intended in, in the beginning, and that's what God wants. So as we read the story of, of creation, what we get is this deep desire welling up from God about what's really true and right and real about creation and our lives and how we interact with each other and what is supposed to be. One of my favorite bands, Switchwood, they talk about the tension that's between how it is and how it could be, between how it is and how it should be. That's where we live. But what, what we long for, what we desire, what we want, is what God placed in us, which is this longing for relationship and oneness and connection. So relationship is at the core of creation. Uh, another guy named Rob Bell, he, he has this video called Everything is Spiritual. He does this thing, he's talking about like photons and electrons and quantum physics. And basically this, like scientists have come to the conclusion that on subatomic particles, like on a subatomic level, um, we always thought about Newton and the laws of gravity and all this thing that A plus B equals C and this predictable sort of thing going on. But actually, as they've delved into quantum physics, what they're finding is that when you, like if you split a lepton, which is a subatomic particle, you put one side of it in San Francisco, one side of it in New York City, um, <laughs> And you switch the, 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 the way in which the electrons go around this side, the, the lepton over here. At the same moment, the one that you split in the other side of the country switches. And the electrons spin the other way. Essentially, what they're saying is this. Scientists are now finding that through quantum physics, the best way to describe matter in its most raw form is some kind of unpredictable relational energy. That this is the most basic building block of all that exists in the world. What do we know about God? It's a relationship. Father, Son, Spirit. Perfect community. Perfect oneness. Is it any wonder that as we dig down to the most basic fundamental building blocks of anything that we know that exists, matter, that we find this weird relational energy thing happening? 
It makes perfect sense. This is who God is. Relationship. And this is what God created. And this is what was lost. And this is what God, in the scriptures, has set, set himself and set out to get back. Through great adversity, through great challenge. This is the best story ever told, right? Uh, not only does it communicate who God is, uh, what God wanted, but I would say last, it, it communicates our role in creation. Uh, we're going to do a little digging here. Genesis 1.11, if you have your Bibles, look at that. 1.11, it says, Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees on the land. Uh, and it goes on, according to their various kinds. The word produce in Hebrew is dashah. And it has this idea that uh, to sprout or to grow. And so creation, the earth, and the animals in it, are endowed by the Creator with this ability to produce, sprout, create, grow. To, so you take a, a picture of a tree, uh, in, in one day you come back and you take another picture in three months and it's changed, right? It's different. It has the ability, God, it, this God-given ability to produce, to grow, to sprout, to do something. Uh, if you go down to Genesis 1.26, it says, let, Then God said, let, man make, let us make man in our image, in our, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Uh, and then in 1.28, it says, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Two words I want to key in. Rule and subdue. Uh, the Hebrew are radah and kabash. And these two words essentially speak to this idea that humans, humanity, have been given this responsibility in creation. So creation is not this static thing. It's not something that God spoke, and then it, that's it. Rather, it's a dynamic thing. It's changing. And humans actually have this invitation to participate in creation at some level, to rule over it, to steward it, and actually to create on some levels. Those of you who have children, you know what I'm talking about. So God, as he creates, as he and Moses, as he tells us this story, tells us a little bit about our role in creation as humans, which is not to just stand back and let it happen, or watch it happen, but to actually participate, to be stewards of, to be active participants in what is going on in creation, which has all kinds of implications as we get to Jesus and the church later. So let me just sum up and I'll close to say that as we look at this story, as we look at creation, a number of things that are going on. God, the, the, the author, Moses, is telling us who this God is, what kind of God we're talking about, what kind of character qualities he has, uh, what we know about him, what he's revealed to us about himself. Uh, he tells us uh, a little bit about um, what, uh, what God wants as, as a creator, what's the... When God spoke, what was his desire? What, would, what did he want? And, and then lastly, what's our role in that? How do we, are we participants or do we just stand back and watch? So let me just challenge you with this. As you think about scripture, as you think about creation, as you think about this story, uh, this is the beginning and it sets the stage for this whole narrative that we're about to experience in the Bible. And what we're going to find is an amazing, beautiful, compelling articulate, uh, artful description of who this God is and what's going on. And it's my hope and prayer that as we do that, that God would meet us, 
because that's what happens in story. Story finds you. It, it actually engages you and impacts you and me on a personal level and on a communal level. And that's our hope and our prayer for this series. Uh.